Thanks for checking out the UNI Salt Company podcast. To learn more about us, go to saltcedarfalls.com. Salt Company. I don't know if you noticed, but three of those band members were wearing the same white t-shirts. Nice. Nice, guys. It looks good. Very grease. I don't know. Anyone knows what I'm talking about? Danny Zuko? That was the vibe that I was getting. So yeah, this is actually the second to last Salt Company of the year. It's, it's kind of a bummer. It's the last time that I get to open God's Word with you this year. I'm not going anywhere, but um, did want to just tell you guys, don't tell any middle schooler I ever ministered to this, what I'm about to tell you. You guys might be more fun, okay? This has been one of my favorite years of ministry, and uh, it's not actually because you're more fun because we don't play dodgeball, but it's because <laughs> you have so welcomed me in, uh, whether it's uh, your willingness to listen to me blab about my children constantly, which I'm going to do again tonight, or... Uh, honestly, it's watching you worship. It's watching you so fall in love with Jesus that it can't help but erupt out of your lives and change not just who you are, but the lives of those around you. And just know um, I deeply love you and I deeply delight in doing this on Thursday nights with you. And I'm excited to do it again. So we're still in our Gospel Change series. This is kind of the finale of the series. We'll have kind of a bonus sermon next week, but this is kind of the, the last sermon in this whole idea of Gospel Change. And I began to realize that as we've called it that, we've never actually really told you what you're changing into, right? And that idea of like, am I growing and am I changing? I think a lot of us ask that question, and the best way for you to know, like, am I changing is just go look at your Facebook memories, okay? You guys know that judgmental tab called On This Day? It should also be called, hey, do you want to feel bad about yourself? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like, you click that button, and two things are going to happen when you open that page. You're going to hate yourself, and you're like, oh, so much shame and regret. And you're going to be like, I'm not that way anymore, right? You know what I'm saying? It's both incredibly encouraging and super judgmental. It's like, hey, it's Facebook. Remember when you were an emotional moron and posted everything you were feeling when you were 12? I do. Here it is again. Oh, gosh, I thought I forgot about that. Or do you remember that time your first status was, I like breadsticks? Yeah, I do. That didn't happen to me. I just thought that'd be funny. Or this is one that happened to me a lot in high school. Remember that passive-aggressive emo punk band lyric you put there because she just doesn't like you and never will? I do. Forget you, Facebook. I hate you, too. You're the worst. Or remember when you were in middle school and your neck was way too long and your arms were weird and a zit had a zit that had a zit? I do. Here's the photo, loser. Ha ha. You're not even out of bed yet and you feel ashamed. Here I am again. Facebook, you're the worst. But remember, it means you've changed, right? Well... Unless some of you haven't, and we're still praying for you. Most of you have, I'm pretty sure. Most of you have. It's, it's like a, it's the same as the Netflix screen. It's like, I didn't come to watch 12 Hours of the Office to be judged. So yes, I'm still watching. Don't ask again. This is why I hate artificial intelligence. It's just going to talk back. Get out. I don't need you in my life, Siri. Move on. I want to be me and not remember who I was. That's the whole point, right? Nothing to do with actually changing, but just thought we'd all... Go back there. And a lot of you who had like Facebook illegally, it's just gonna keep getting worse because we have photo evidence of you from like middle school, like right when you turned 11, and it's gonna keep going until you're like 91. 
Oh, can't wait. Anyways, next time you click on that screen, you're going to shudder, and then you're going to remember, I'm different. So remember the hope in that moment. You are changing, I promise, and it's more than just your acne or your weird obsession with punk band lyrics. The gospel does change you. But we're asking the question, what does it change me into? What is this whole process supposed to look like? Or at least if I'm doing it right, what should I start looking like? The answer to that is the image of God. If you really are changing, you should be changing into the image of God, the pre-fallen state of humanity, but with an upgrade. Because it's not just the image of God, it's his resurrected son, Jesus. This greater version of even who Adam and Eve were, because it's one that's conquered sin, death, and hell, and has risen. We're becoming like Jesus. God does not just change our eternal destination. He starts, the moment we take that gospel breath, this inward transformation. Each breath of the gospel is meant to change us on the inside. Yes, it sends us somewhere when we die, but it starts to change us right where we are. That's what the gospel does. And the Christian word for this transformation process, if you want to get fancy, is sanctification. You've probably heard that before if you grew up in church. It's the process of sanctification. It's a God-initiated, God-empowered, God-accomplished process where he transforms us through his spirit into reflections of his character. That's what sanctification is. God is absolutely the one who orchestrates it, who orchestrates it and initiates it. He's the one moving to do it, but he still calls us to play a part in it. It is a process that only he can accomplish, but it requires something from us. So it's not passive. It's not passive. We just don't sit there and let it happen like a, a pedicure, right? I've never had one of those. I'm not speaking from experience. Not because I'm judging it. You know, guys can get pedicures too. It's just because I don't want people uh, talking about me in a language I don't understand and touching my feet. That just freaks me out, right? They could be talking about how nasty my bunions are. I just don't need that. I know. I don't need you to clean them up for me. That's what the shower is for. So, but you just lay there, right, ladies? Get cucumbers on your eyes or there's those scary new black charcoal masks that you can't rip off. Throw one of those on. Have somebody touch your feet. Apparently you, apparently you really like it. I don't know why, but you do. You sit there and it happens. Sanctification's not that. We don't just sit there and go, okay, God, rub my feet, change me, this is going to be great. No. It's also not an independent process, right? It's not like God just sends you how to become like Jesus for dummies through Amazon. It shows up at your door, you're like, okay, here we go, this Bible thing, I should start that. That's not how it is either. So it's not passive, and it's not independent. We don't just let it happen to us, but we don't just go and do it on our own. So tonight, we need to figure out what is the right response, how does sanctification happen, and what are we really supposed to do about it? And we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to figure it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want you to go to verse 7. Now we're going to read 2 Corinthians 3 verses 7 to 18, but where we'll spend most of our night together is in verses 12 through 18. But to get the full context, I'm going to read everything. So 2 Corinthians 3 verses 7 to 18. Grab your Bibles, grab your apps, follow along with me, starting in verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Here's where we'll be staying most of the night. Starting in verse 12. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. We're going to unpack all of that. It's not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So a few things we're going to do together tonight. The first thing is we're going to see how sanctification or this process of transformation actually starts. We're going to see how God starts it and where we may not understand it. And then we're going to look at how we go about doing it the wrong way. So we all respond, or a lot of us have tried to respond to God's process of sanctification. And we typically, uh, not even intentionally, tweak it. We'll look at the right response and then the process of that response and what it looks like. So we'll start with, how does this whole thing start? How do I begin to be sanctified? How do I begin to be transformed? Verse 12 says this, Since then, we have such a hope. Paul's saying, since we have the gospel, the thing that you and I have been unpacking for the last few weeks, since we have this hope, this truth of what Jesus has done, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. So that, for you, like it was for me, is probably totally confusing. What the heck is he talking about? Let's unpack that. So if you don't know who Moses was, Moses is the let my people go, like Red Sea staff, I'm going to part this thing. The Old Testament OG, like think massive beard, tons of white hair, old rugged staff. Like he is this incredible Old Testament character who led God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness, then ultimately got them to the promised land. Here's what Exodus, the whole book kind of unpacking his origin story, says in Exodus 33:11 about Moses. It says that Moses and God would talk face to face. God himself would talk to Moses face to face. So they would, he would go up to the mountain. He would go into the tabernacle, which is like their mobile church. He would sit there and he would talk to God face to face. He was the only one who would and the only one who God would let do that. And you don't do that and walk away unchanged, right? You don't go and look at God face to face, speak with him, and stay the same. But what would happen to Moses is he would walk off the mountain out of there after talking to God, and his face was shining like a Christmas tree, right? Like floodlight. They could not look at him. The people of Israel, they had to cover their eyes because they couldn't even see. It's just like when some of you go outside, you sit in the sun long enough, you either get burnt or tan. You sit with God long enough like Moses did, and he would walk out covered in his glory, just like this aura around him. And so he would have to wear this veil over his face so that the people could look at him and listen to what he had to say from what God said to him. But this passage says something about the end of the glory of what was being set aside. 
See, Moses was also putting this veil on so that the people of Israel wouldn't see that the glory was fading. So that Christmas tree or that floodlight, just glowing aura would actually fade over time. And Moses would wear this veil so they couldn't see him. It wouldn't last. Just like a summer tan uh, in the fall slowly fades, so too would this glory. And this whole process seems confusing. What is he trying to say right now? It's actually symbolizing that the old covenant that God made when they got out of Egypt with the Israelites was deficient. It was not going to be something that was permanent. So this idea that it would fade, the glory would fade off Moses' face was also communicating to us and to God's people that that agreement I made with you, it's not going to last. And what was that agreement? I want you to think Ten Commandments and animal sacrifice, okay? How I'm supposed to live and how to fix my sin. Because when I realize how I'm supposed to live, people would realize I can't live up to it, so I got to cover it with animal sacrifice, That was the old covenant in a nutshell. And they would have to do this over and over and over again. Sacrifice an animal, people mess up. Sacrifice an animal, people mess up. Sacrifice an animal, people mess up. Over and over and over again. See, because the old covenant, this old agreement that God made with his people was covering their sin, but it had to keep going again and again and again. And it was showing them what was right and wrong. They had the law. They knew how they were supposed to live But the reason it was deficient, the reason it was not going to last, is because it couldn't change them. They kept failing. And the sacrifices that God set up, they weren't permanent. They needed something that was long-lasting, once and for all, and the old covenant didn't have it. Because they would uh, always need the animal sacrifice, and they would always break the law. But there's also another problem. The people were also veiled. But they weren't veiled physically. They were walking around like their wedding day. But their hearts were veiled. So unlike Moses, who literally had to wear a veil, the people of God were spiritually veiled. Their hearts were covered, unable to understand the commandments, the laws, and the words of God. And the old covenant could do nothing to change that. Verse 14 says, Their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted because it's set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when Moses would go and tell the people what God wanted them to hear, it would fall on spiritually deaf ears and spiritually blind eyes. The Bible's language for this talks about anyone who is dead in their sin, anyone who has a hard heart, or anyone who is blind to the things of God. We see that all the time. And the same thing is true even today. There are people sitting in this room where it says, still yet today, that when you hear the words of God, when you try to open your Bibles, nothing happens. You aren't moved because your heart is veiled. The spiritual state of anyone who has not been made alive or taken that first gospel breath is the same. It's blind, right? You ever wonder, while you can sing that song, So Will I, and most of us are like getting the Holy Spirit goosebumps, we tear up a little bit, we're just like, yes, God, like there's movement, or you listen to a sermon, 
Paul stretches out his arms when he's talking about some part of the gospel where you are far from God and brought near and your heart just almost feels like it's tugged in to the moment. You're moved by it. Or sometimes when we hear the challenge of God's word, the spirit almost compels us to respond to it. And that whole time you're sitting and they're having this experience and the person next to you looks like a dead possum. Just, ugh. You, you know you're laughing because you're like, yeah, Steve just did that last week. I always pick on Steve. I'm sorry, Steve. I don't know who you are. But there is this reality that if your heart is veiled, it does not matter how many times you hear the gospel, you will not change and it will not affect you. You will walk out of here questioning more, what do I want to eat? Not what does God want me to do? If your heart is veiled, that is true of you. That's why so many people can walk out of church, whether on a Sunday or a Thursday, and go right back to the things the pastor was just telling them the Bible says you shouldn't do and have no remorse for it because your heart is veiled. You have no desire to change and you have no ability to change because your heart is hard so you don't even want to change. And it cannot be removed by playing church. Only Jesus can do it. It says in Christ, this veil is removed. Only he can remove it. Apart from him, all of us are hard-hearted, spiritually blind, dead, deaf, and incapable of self-transformation. And that's an important thing for us to slow down and talk about because some, of, some people who grow up in church, some people in this room, you have actually been walking blind and fooling everybody for years. Like a blind person who walks the same route to maybe a job or a friend's house every day. You've walked in and out of churches. You know the youth group answers. You've been long enough in Sunday school that you can convince everyone around you that you can see but really, this whole time, you're blind. You've just navigated it so many ways that you're really good at tricking everybody around you. And what Jesus wants you to know is you might be faking us out, but you have not faked him out. He wants you to see. He actually wants to remove your blindness and allow you to change. He wants you to stop relying on the right answers and legalism, church attendance or catechism, and he wants you to see and change because his spirit has made your heart alive, not because you know how to navigate your way and be pretty much left alone. Because if this doesn't happen, you'll never actually change. It'll just be you modifying your behavior, learning the right answers, and doing this empty trying to be different. But if you admit that you're blind and ask Jesus to remove the veil from your heart, Everything will change, and you will see, because this is the power of the new covenant. See, this is where things are different. This is why we have this great boldness, because this new covenant, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the thing that we've been unpacking for weeks and weeks and weeks now, that actually can change you, because it does everything the old covenant did, right? It tells you the difference between right and wrong, but it covers your sin for good, and allows you the ability to change, so that you're not who you were, and you become who he wants you to be. That's why what Jesus has done and what we have is better than what Moses had, and why it actually provides real hope for change. Jesus did not die so we could fake it. He actually wants you to experience it for real. He wants our dead hearts to beat. He wants us to finally breathe. He didn't set up some system of this religious rule following and somehow like moral manipulation. He actually came to set you free. 
right? Verse 17 says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When the veil is removed, God's spirit moves you. That's when things begin to look different. Jesus Christ came to actually allow you to experience freedom. We talked about how we're dead to sin, but alive to him, right? That this idea that it's not rule following or behavior modifying, it's the spirit creating freedom in us, the freedom to change. The thing we never could have done under the old covenant or by ourselves is possible in Jesus. We have the freedom now to be made back into the image we were always meant to mirror. He wants that for us. He wants freedom from your spiritual blindness, freedom from your guilt, and freedom from sin's power. Jesus is like the king of extreme home makeover, right? Remember that crazy guy, Ty, who was way too excited about his job? I always wondered if he did drugs. It was just kind of this crazy, oh, let's make this kid's room into a race car and they have to pay taxes on it. It'll be great. You know, and the big reveal, everybody's happy. What you don't know is how much money I'll have to pay for rent now. It's, sorry, I'm not trying to ruin that show for you. But Jesus, he comes and he finds us in this condemned state, right? He's like, there's no way this house can rebuild itself. It's garbage. It's awful. It's nothing. What he does is he bulldozes it. He's like, I don't want the old. I'm going to start new. And he starts from the ground up, pours in new foundation, beams, drywall, and everything. And he makes you in to the image that you were always meant to be. The kind of person that was always meant for you, but sin took from you. Jesus gives you the ability to transform back. He makes us free. And here's where we then begin to get it wrong, I think. And not even on purpose. We respond, but not the way that he means us to. I think there's kind of two ways that we, in all just earnestness and desire, try to join in the process of sanctification. And I think these two things actually end up taking sanctification out of God's hands and putting them in ours. And we can't do that because we can't do it. This transformation that needs to happen is one that we cannot accomplish. So I'm just going to call them ditches. So ditch one is the avoid my sin ditch. I'm going to avoid my sin, avoid my sin, avoid my sin, okay? So in hopes of changing, you make every effort you can to just avoid your sin. Like you ditch some friends, you put locks on your computer, you always leave the door open, you don't turn on certain TV shows, you don't even listen to secular music, like you just avoid it. While it sounds good, what often this does is leaves us focused on not doing, not doing, not doing. And it actually creates your Christian life, this walking on eggshells, always trying to avoid, always trying to be careful, always nervous, that one wrong move and it's all going to break again. You're just trying to avoid, you're just trying to stay away. Think of like uh, a criminal jumping through a museum, not to Try not to trip the laser wires, right? You've all seen that, whether in a cartoon or the Oceans movies. You literally live this Christian life. You're like, I just got to avoid that. Oh, she's pretty, but I can't look. Here we go. And then, oh, don't want to drink that. No, Tom, I can't do it. Nope. And you're just, you're constantly worried about something bad happening and always trying to avoid. And you're just focused, not doing, not doing, not doing. Okay, and what I'm not doing is condemning you. If you loved to get blackout drunk, and you're like, I can't hang out with those guys anymore. That's not a bad thing, right? I'm not telling you you shouldn't set up guardrails in your life that keep you from the sins that quickly pull you down. What I am telling you, though, is just avoiding it won't change you. Just avoiding it won't change you because it doesn't make the desire for it go away. 
And it actually creates this Christian life so focused on failure that it's all you're looking at, right? If I want to fall more in love with my wife, I do not sit and write a list of all the ways that I've failed her, hurt her, or said things I regret, right? Man, this will definitely make me love her more. I didn't take the trash out again. I still haven't painted that wall. That's still broken. Oh, and I yelled at her that time. I'm not like, I really want to love her more, right? No. I'm actually like, I need to get as far away from you as possible because I feel dead inside. This is terrible. Why are you with me? Which is usually what I ask, but especially in those moments. What do you do? I remember her beauty. I sit and remember, I love how her eyes remind me of these beautiful, strong hurricanes. I love how smart she is. I love watching her teach my daughters how to be women of God. I look, and not just her physical beauty, but her inward beauty, the things that draw me to her. Then I'm not focused on failures. I'm focused on her and her beauty. And then I go, now I move to an action out of a right place, one that will last. You know, you don't focus when you're on a diet on what you can't eat, right? That's a bad idea. If you are trying to eat Whole30, don't think about Texas Roadhouse rolls. It's just a bad plan. You're going to fail because that cinnamon butter is going to call your name. You're going to be like, no, I can't, no, I can't. And all of a sudden, you're in that university roundabout headed towards that strange place. <laughs> and you're there. You're like, I was supposed to be eating kale, and all I want is biscuits and milkshakes. I just, okay, let's do this. I'll start tomorrow, right? Everybody loves that line. I'll start tomorrow. You don't focus on what you shouldn't have because it won't change. When you're following Google Maps, you don't go, okay, I just need to focus on every route I'm not supposed to take. I'm just going to focus on every route I'm not supposed to take. No, you focus on the one that's going to get you there. But why don't we do that with our Christian life? A lot of us think sanctification is, I just need to stay away. 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 The whole time ignoring God himself. The whole time not looking at the one who even put us on the path in the first place. Just slid into this ditch. I'm just going to try to avoid. And what you actually end up doing is you're always covered in your failure because you're only focused on it. And you constantly find yourself in it. And so you're guilty again and again and again. Spending all your time trying not to do it, but it's the only thing you seem to do. So avoiding it is not enough and it's not the right response. Now the other ditch is the change my behavior ditch, kind of the American dream style of Christianity, the legalistic ditch, if you will. Both of them kind of are, but it's this idea that once you're saved, you go, I'm a Christian now, so I shouldn't do it. This is typically guilt-driven and duty-oriented uh, based on your ability to change your behavior. If you're like, is this me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? You're like, I'm never going to do it again, God. I promise. I'm never going to do it again. Or almost frustration, like, why did you let me do it again? I told you I wasn't going to do it again. Oh, why did I do it again? Guilt and self-condemnation are typically the two feelings that follow you if you think your sanctification involves you changing your behavior. And I'm telling you, Jesus did not die for you to feel that way. And his sanctification would never involve the words condemnation because he brings freedom. Our ability to change our behavior is no better than a 30-day trial of Netflix, you guys. It's temporary, and it won't last. You will eventually have to face the reality of your homework and get it done. It's not enough to change the paint on a car if the engine is what's faulty, right? When we try to take this behavior modifying into our own hands, it kind of does the job, but only outwardly, because the problem isn't first in what you're doing, it's in why you're doing it. 
Changing your behavior is as effective in changing who you are as you changing your clothes makes you into a different person, right? So as much as Reed Smith wants to be like Woody from Toy Story, he can put on as many cowboy hats, wear as many stirrups and cowboy boots as he wants. He's never going to have a southern accent, and I don't think he knows how to ride a horse, right? And just putting on the outfit's not going to make it happen. It's just not. Our attempts to change our behavior only temporarily solve the problem because it only lasts for a little bit, which then can create pride because you think, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, you must be proud of me, which remember we learned, he's not proud of you or loves you because of what you do, but because of what his son did, but it creates that false sense of I've done this so you should love me, and it still leaves you with a broken heart because that's what needs to change. We have to have a heart change to experience real behavior change. So if we're in either of those ditches, we're not on the path looking at the one who put us there how do we actually change? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Verse 18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. That's that key, looking. That's our response, is to look in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. The language of the passage informs the action of us, the believers. Look, look, look at what? At the glory of the Lord. Okay, what is that? That sounds really weird and Christian. The glory of the Lord, looking at what it is, is looking at what Jesus has done and who he is. That's what, what you have to look at. You have to look at the gospel. I know it sounds cliche, but if it was that simple, we would all be doing it just fine. We look at the gospel. We remember what Jesus has done. We remember who he is. Okay, so does that mean that every night before bed, instead of scrolling through your Instagram, you just stare at a crucifix? Wouldn't that be weird? It's working. Oh, I know the scriptures now. Oh, no, that's weird. That'd be so weird. Don't like that. That's a weird, nope, Blech. Okay, but maybe you do this. You cover your wall in pictures of that gentle, white, cuddly Jesus. You know, the one who loves lambs and children? He's always got a child in one hand, a lamb in the other. He's like, come with me. I'm white and French. I'm totally accurate to what I really look like. <laughs> no, you're not. Staring at him's not weird. Like, people did that with Justin Bieber on their walls. They didn't turn into him, right? It's not going to work for you just to stare at him. Maybe it'll happen. How do we look at him, though? How do we look at him? How does it happen? It's not those creepy ways. What's the actual way? Well, when it says look, it does imply this idea that you can see, but it's that you can see because the Holy Spirit has given you the right eyes. It's unveiled your face. It's not literal sight, but spiritual sight. So the key to becoming more like Jesus is to behold Jesus. It's literally as simple as opening your Bible. We so often Feel this pull to not want to do something that simple, but it's because I think the enemy knows the minute you start opening that thing up, the minute God's glory is going to start splashing on you and you're going to start to change. Because without the veil, that's not something that only I understand and can talk to you about. If you know Jesus and have been made alive to him and taken your gospel breath, the Bible is not mysterious. It is literally a book filled with true things about God and you. Every week that we've preached this incredible gospel that's been moving us to change comes out of his word. And you don't need me or Jordan to show it to you. If you are alive in Christ, then God will come alive to you when you open 
his Bible that he's given you. You have to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. You have to remember that first breath. Remember, every single day, you have to remind yourself, I am justified. Even if I hit Ethel in the head with a two-by-four, God says I'm not guilty, right? You need to remind yourself, I don't have to rededicate my life again because he died for my life once and he rescued me forever. You have to remind yourself that when you mess up, because you will, he's not mad at me. He always loves me because Jesus took the wrath that I deserved so that I can live free. You have to tell yourself that stuff every day and remembering those things. And even, have you noticed that every worship song I think we sing has some true fact about the gospel in it? That's not coincidence. If you go to the SALT conference and you sit there for that hour in the worship night, you feel different when you walk away. Because you've sat there for that long with God's people together saying true things about the gospel. How often do you just sit for an hour and remember what's true about you because of what Jesus has done? It's that simple. It's really not this magic complex thing. It's just remembering every day. And here's how that's better than those ditches, okay? If you're stuck in the one of avoiding sin, see, if you look at God's glory and you see the beauty of Jesus, what you'll actually begin to realize is how ugly sin really is. Now, I hope a lot of you haven't experienced this, but sometimes when a bar shuts down, the way they get people out is to turn on all the lights. Yeah, it is a scary sight, I'm telling you right now. Because when the lights are off, and the booze is flowing, everybody's like, this is great. You don't see the stains. You can't tell there's smells, and everybody looks awesome. All of a sudden, the lights go on, and you're like, oh, what happened? You all look like Smeagol, and you go running out of the bar. <laughs> because you're like, it's so bad, right? Jesus, when you see his beauty, it turns the lights on on your sin, and your sin can never stand before the beauty of God. The attractiveness of sin will always fail miserably when it's put up against the beauty of Jesus. It will always fail miserably when it's put up against the beauty of Jesus. So then what happens is instead of avoiding your sin, you expose it by remembering that the gospel is better. Instead of avoiding it, when you see Jesus, it will actually change your appetite for what you want entirely. He will transform your desire because he quickly becomes so much more beautiful than the ugly reality of your sin. Jesus doesn't want you to just avoid sin. He wants to change you in such a way that you don't even want it in the first place. So you don't have to live this Christian life just trying to avoid it. It can pass you by and you can go, I don't even want it. Because you have Jesus, which is better. The reality is that the more beautiful Jesus becomes, the less attractive sin will be. Every single time. We change by seeing the better beauty of Jesus not just avoiding or trying harder to stay away from our sin. And then it goes after your desire to change your behavior because Jesus can change you in a way that lasts much longer than a 30-day trial because it's not your behavior, it's your heart that needs transformation. You do not fix yourself, you fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the only qualified mechanic who can do work on your heart. I'm telling you, if you're like me, you try to watch that YouTube video, open the hood, things are gonna break and it's only gonna get worse. But when Jesus does it, he fixes it and actually makes it better than it ever was before. He'll do it in a way that lasts because he'll go after your heart, which will change your behavior because you won't even want to do what you used to do. When you spend time with the one who died for you, you will begin to see your old behaviors die, Salt Company. 
when you spend time with the one who died for you, you will watch your old behaviors die. Now, how in the world does that process happen? That's the last thing that often frustrates us as Christians, too. It's the process of change. It happens over time. Okay, your sanctification, I'm telling you right now, is not instantaneous. It's not like a microwave, and it's not like a Happy Meal. It doesn't come to you quickly. It's not instantaneous. See, it says in that verse 18, being transformed from one degree to the next. This idea, being transformed, implies that it's a process, that it's going to take time to get where God wants us to go. It's not drive-through sanctification. It's more like a 10-course meal. And if you ever have eaten anything from McDonald's, it tastes great right away, but then after a while, it starts to really hurt. It's like some greasy cat's asleep in your stomach. It's not meant to be there anyways, right? But when you taste the time energy and preparation that goes into a 10-course meal, you really enjoy it, you know it was worth it. Jesus takes his time because he's doing more thorough a job than you and I could ever do. We would want the easy way out. It's how our culture works. As fast as possible, as quickly to me as I can get it, and he just doesn't work that way. And we can get so frustrated at how slow this is. We either don't like it or don't believe it. I'm telling you right now, I used to get as blackout drunk as I possibly could. And even after I met Jesus, I still sometimes wanted to get drunk. I didn't have that miraculous conversion story where I went from snorting coke to serving in soup kitchens. I don't know if you had that. I didn't. I got saved and still liked to do the things I was not supposed to do. And I would get so frustrated because I was like, I thought I was supposed to change. Is something wrong with my salvation? Remember, we thought that at the beginning of this whole thing. We remembered our first breath. The answer is no. No, because the process is slow, because God is thorough, and he does things absolutely right, and he does it in a way that lasts. We may give up or get angry and frustrated either with ourselves or with God, but he does not. I mean, think again of you five years ago when that Facebook thing comes up. You feel that shudder. You see those pimples. Think to you now. Hopefully you've changed, right? But it didn't happen in a day. You still put that emo boys like girls song lyric on there, Michael, and you were a big feely nerd. Now you're still feely, but at least you only post pictures about your kids, so I guess that's a little better. But you changed, okay? A year ago, our little Auden, we call her Audio, all she could do was poop and cry. You know? A lot of you, that's what you do, right? You poop and you cry and you look at your student loan debt. I'm feeling for you right now. Just today, Auden can waddle around. Well, she's been walking, but now she does this little thing where she waddles around like this, like she almost has to keep herself balanced. And whenever she wakes her sister up, she goes, hi, mwah. Yeah, it's super cute. And then Finley goes, eh. No, I'm just kidding. She loves her and plays with her. It's really great. But even that change was slow. Auden, a year ago, poop her pants and cry to Auden today, walking around and saying hi. And you can make the argument, that's not a big deal. That should happen. But then we get so frustrated with ourselves and we're so bad at seeing the growth that we've gone through in even just a few months. What I'm telling you is God is not as frustrated with your growth as you are. 
And he is not condemning you for trying. He's encouraging you to keep going. Because Auden did not just one day go, no, I'm going to walk. And up she went, walking around. It took time and she fell a lot. You guys have maybe heard this analogy before from my friend Mark Vance, because I have kids, I can tell you it too. She had to learn how to walk over time. And when she would fall, it's not like my wife and I would just go, you dummy, you fell again. You giant baby idiot, get up. (laughs) Try again. Like, can you believe this? I don't even want to be your dad. Could you just get up and walk, please? Like, seriously, what is your problem? Are you stupid? Just take the step and move again. Put your hands up in the air if you have to. Just walk. Come on, you dumb baby. Just walk. You guys, you think God says that to you when you don't change. So many of you live Christian lives that stay in one place, afraid to get up to try to walk again because you think God is going to belittle you or make you feel stupid. And he never, ever will. He started the process of changing you, and he plans to complete it. And he delights in every moment of it, even when you fall, because he knows it's an opportunity to teach you how to get back up and try again. We change not by listening to ourselves in those stupid lives that we so easily believe, but by looking at the beauty and the glory of a God who knows how messed up we are. But every time we fall, says, get up, keep going. I love you, and I'm proud of you. That's how you will change. A life that sees that and knows that will be transformed by it. We need to stop trying to change ourselves and instead put ourselves in the light and beauty of the gospel. Because a life that realizes that Jesus is better will result in a life that displays it over time. Over time. The gospel will change you and is changing you. Put yourself in a position to every day that you can look at its beauty and let the warmth of the sun and the love of God motivate you to stay there for a lifetime and change little by little in ordinary ways that have eternal impact. Pray with me. Jesus, I am so grateful that in this room you know which hearts are still veiled and you also know the ones that can see. And I pray that even right now tonight you would unveil hearts, that you would do what only you can do, and that's help the blind see. And then I pray, God, that tonight that we would recognize that it's not just avoiding our sin or trying to, on our own, change our behavior, but it's actually to just look at you, at what you've done, at who you are, and ultimately who you say we are. That will change us. And so as we sing the truth of the gospel, would you change us? It doesn't even have to be in a dramatic way. We don't even have to feel goosebumps or even acknowledge that it's happening because you're doing it. As we proclaim the truth that are in these songs, would we be changed? Would you dump your glory on us? And would we reflect it? And it's not in a way that fades because when you come and you start a change, 
it keeps going and it gets better. And so Jesus, hear our voices, change our hearts, show us your beauty. We love you. This has been a message from the Salt Company. We'd love for you to join us Thursday nights at 8 p.m. at Cambodia Church in Cedar Falls.